0: If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 is where we will spend a good amount of time today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we're continuing our series looking at these Beatitudes. It comes from two words, beautiful and attitudes, the B attitudes, some call it the heavenly attitudes. And, and in preparation this week, I came across uh, just a, a story, just kept ruminating. I thought we could uh, get some insight from, and that is any car people in the place today? Any of you like cars, any car people? I know, I I, I like to look at cars, like to go to car shows and how many of you have ever heard of a car called a Rolls-Royce? Come on somebody. Hey, there you go. How many of you would like to own a little Rolls-Royce up in here? Hey, cruising down the lago in Chicago. We doing our thing. Rolls-Royce some of the most expensive cars in the world. And when a Rolls-Royce is made, obviously almost every part of it, especially the interior, is hand-sewn, handcrafted, handmade. It takes years to make some of the parts. Uh, at different locations, but when they bring it all together in one warehouse to create the car, to put all of these parts together it takes roughly six months. And every part is scrutinized and highly crafted and skilledfully put together. But the last test before it goes to the lot to be sold or however it's sold, they will lift the hood And they will pay somebody, this is their job, to, with a stethoscope, listen to every single inch of the engine. They are listening for any abnormalities in the sound and the vibration of the car. And if they found it to be off, they don't tweak it, they scrap it and start again. They say that they're made to last a lifetime. In fact, they stand behind their products so much so that if you have any issues with your car, with your Rolls Royce, they will fly a mechanic anywhere in the world to fix it. I mean, that's a nice car. You know, a question I have, though, is I wonder how long it takes for your car to be made. My car to be made. Anybody have any guess and at all how much how long it takes to make that Ford Fusion, that Chevy Blaze, that Toyota Prius and Camry. From beginning to end, once all the parts are in the warehouse, 13 hours. Really? Yeah. So you got you wanna be the Toyota Camry or you wanna be the Rolls Royce. You just gotta pick in your life. Just messing. But here's my thought on this. I think when you read the Beatitudes, I want you to read them in such a way that you're holding a stethoscope to your life, to your heart. And you're listening, and you're watching to see if there's anything that's off. Because if you've ever wondered, what is a Christian supposed to do? What is a Christian supposed to look like? What does it mean to be Christ-like? This is Jesus himself explaining that to you and to I. Now, the thing about this, it says we're about to read blessed or blessed is the beginning of every one of these beatitudes. And I'll just say this. We've defined that as God's favor on a life that leads to a deeply embedded joy that's not dependent upon anything on the exterior, but everything that God is doing on the interior. It is the favor of God at rest on your life that leads to a deeply embedded joy that is not affected in any way by outside circumstances. It's the blessed life. Now, the thing that makes these so unique is that this, is where you find the blessing of God. There are places that you wouldn't even think to look, and I wouldn't have looked there. It's when you're poor in spirit, when you're mourning, and when you're hungering and thirsting. And there are places where you're persecuted and being lied about. It's in the midst of suffering, almost, that you find this blessed life, the Beatitudes at work, I want to read them again. And like we've been doing every week, we do a, a, a reflection, a response. So I'll do the first part and you guys will do the second part of each one of these. And the last one, because there's no reframe, I'll just read it myself. So I'll put them on the screen here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then I'll read the last one. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That last one, I always want to leave that one out. Today we're looking at a third one. Blessed are, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I was practicing the message in my house this week, and one of my, my daughters, my oldest daughter, I said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And she says, Dad, what in the world does a mink have to do with God? So I just want to get it clear today. We're talking about meek. And then she's like, What is that? When we read the scripture, sometimes we read that and we're like, What is meekness? Sometimes we correlate meekness to weakness. I say, Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I think the best definition you could give for meekness is this, great power under great control. Great power under great control. And that is meekness. It was the 1930s in downtown Detroit when three young white males got on a bus in the early 20s. They notice in the back of the bu- bus and a, and a seat, a man, African-American man in his 20s, just leaned over, hunched down in a seat. They make their way to the back of the bus, being the only four people on the bus. They th- quickly surround him in the seats and begin to berate him, call him all kinds of racial slurs and names. And, but the, m- the young African-American man is undeterred, doesn't move, doesn't respond, doesn't say a word. This goes on for 15, 20 minutes. Finally, the bus stops at one of its locations. It stops, and this man, African-American man, black American, 20-something years old, stands up. And it's when the three young white males realize that they have severely underestimated this situation. He was hunched over in the seat, but now he's six foot plus, 200-something pounds, and chiseled. And they know, and he knows, that with one punch he could knock every single one of them brothers out. We're standing in front of them. He reaches in the back of his back pocket, and they are just wide-eyed, not knowing what is he going to pull out of that. He pulls out a business card, puts it in one of their hands, never says a word, walks right off the bus. Once they made sure he was safely off the bus, these three individuals... Looked down at the card, and this is what they read. Joe Lewis, heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Come on, somebody. That's meekness. Great power, is said of him that he could, I don't know how they figured this out, he could knock a horse off of its feet with one punch. Power. Could have taken every one of those guys out in a matter of seconds. It's great power, and to their delight, it was under great control. Meekness. I have today in my mind an audience. I'm speaking to everybody, but I'm, I know we have several graduates in the house today. High school graduates come in, and we have college graduates, bachelors, masters, doc, postdoc. And can we just give it up for all of our graduates in the place today? Hey, you made it. Some of you, cum laude, summa cum laude, and some of you were, oh, Lord, help me all the way through. You were ready. Hey, you made it. Hey, I don't care what Lod you got, you're there. <laughs> uh, some of you, uh, this will be the last in-person sermon I may ever preach to you. And so some of you have been here for years, and I'm aware of that today. I feel the weight of that. And in some ways, this could be my final I'll say my final message to you as you go build careers. Every summer, this year it'll be in June, I take a sabbatical, I get two weeks of learning and, and coupled with two weeks of a vacation added on. Every year, at the beginning of it, I listen to the same leadership thought message by the name of Dr. Ivan Savarata. He is a world-renowned theologian He's a sought-after leadership consultant, but he's a pastor of a church in Calcutta, India. He was in the backyard of where Mother Teresa did a lot of her work. At a global leadership summit in Chicago, of all places, with tens of thousands in the room, half a million people watching online, the backdrop of some of the world's greatest leadership thinkers. Here's a pastor delivering a talk on leadership. The title of the message, Is the power paradox and it fits so well with our thoughts on meekness he said that leadership is power think of it in terms of power it is the power to change reality not always for the good and sometimes for the bad power in and of itself he said is 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 neutral It's not inherently good, and it's not inherently bad. Power can be accumulated over time. You can increase your power. It says that leadership or power will inherently reflect the character and the motives of the leader. Whether it's good and whether it's bad, whether it's used to abuse, or whether it's never used at all, is ultimately determined by the character of the leader. And he gave three categories of power that leaders must wield. First one is knowledge power. And he talked in terms of uh, the, the ladder of power and how in life, especially in our careers in different contexts, we will climb the ladder of power. And first is knowledge power. And you graduates, many of you have just increased your power. You've got a world-class degree and, and the realm of a study that you wanted to study, you have increased your power sometimes it's not just through education. Sometimes it's being on the job and getting a skill to do the job more efficiently. They send you off or they train you on site and you have now got a skill and you have increased your power. You are climbing up the ladder of power. Sometimes it's that you've been in the job so long and you've done all the different things. You're the go-to person. Everybody calls you when there's a problem because you have climbed the ladder of power. Knowledge. Second area, he says that we steward is people power. Uh, some of us uh, have a, a, an incredible people skills naturally, and some of us have learned. I took a nine-week class one time on just how to introduce yourself, how to give a speech, just how to really remember people's names, just people skills. That's power. Uh, sometimes it's the ability to communicate a vision. You learn the skills of communication so that you can articulate a vision and create momentum. That's power. You can win whole campaigns. You can become presidents of companies and nations with the ability to communicate. It's power. There's another one, a network. Some of us, we've cultivated a network that's local, that's global, that can be tapped into at any moment to make a dream into a reality, to wield great change. It's power. And what Dr. Ivan talked about that day is though as sometimes... When we climb this ladder, we don't always do it with pure motives. In fact, we do it from a selfish point of view, for personal gain. He said often, when you're climbing the ladder of power, we look at this ladder in society and the jobs and in life to determine our value, our dignity, our worth. If I'm down here, I have little worth and little value. But if I'm up here, I have more value and I have more worth. It's the ladder of power. Now, I want you to know when you think in terms of power, is that often we do not gravitate towards meekness. In fact, that's not our first instinct. We need God's help to move towards that. Our first instinct is something different. Our first instinct is to comparison and competition. Now, I'll prove it to you. Ever been in, ever seen kids who been to the playground and or maybe this was yourself, you run down the hallway and you're proud because you run fast until the person next to you says, I can do it faster. So, and next thing you know, we're comparing and contrasting and we're in a competition. And this is what we do, I can go further. I can go higher. I, I'm, I can get a better score intelligence. And it's cute when it's young, but then we get teenagers and then we're adults. And then we're even middle age and retirement age. And we're still comparing and contrasting. Education-wise, we can do it in the sense of economics. We can do it in our looks. We it just plays out in so many scenarios. This is what we call the social comparison theory. Is that when I feel as if there I'm around people who are worse off than me, I have a high estimation, self worth, and self esteem. But where I feel like I'm less than and people are better off than me, it goes down. If you Determine your worth in terms of money, put yourself in a homeless shelter, and you're feeling good about yourself. Put you in a room full of billionaires, and now you don't think so highly of yourself, and your self-worth goes down. And that is the crux of the matter that we find ourselves in, because listen, the disciples themselves struggled with this exact scenario. It's towards the end of Jesus' ministry, we're getting ready to head to the Passover meal and shortly after that, the crucifixion. People began to talk because there was momentum. Jesus was at the apex of his power ladder, if you will, at that moment. Thousands are following. Cities are in uproar. People, the droves. They can see where this is going. The disciples know that Jesus is going to establish the kingdom at any moment, sit on a throne, overthrew the Romans, not realizing that it was going to be a spiritual kingdom, and they begin to argue amongst themselves. Jesus, who's going to sit at your right hand? And they begin to jostle, take Jesus aside and say, hey, forget about Peter, John, James, I know they're cool. But listen right here. We're going to sit into the right and to the left. And this is what it says, Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest comparison, competition, who's the greatest. So this message today, I'm going to need your help. I need honest, open, transparent, hot conversation. That's what we say. Doors open, lights on. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. Here's the question. Where do you struggle with competition and comparison in your life? Where do you struggle with competition and comparison in your life? Now, here's what I'm going to do. Now we're going to be honest here. I'll go first. Pastors inherently, here's how we measure our worth: by how many people attend our services. How many people? When we all get together, there's a hierarchy being established. It's not how are you doing this. How many are you running on Sunday? How many services you guys got? How many campuses you guys now? And without even realizing it, what we're doing is we're creating a ladder, of power, or a ladder of power. Because what happens, the more people I have, the more you need to listen to me. I know better than the church of 100 and 550. I am more highly esteemed. We create these ladders of power and we struggle with identity. You feel good in one scenario, but let the church of 10,000 come in. You're like, I don't know nothing up in here. <laughs> it's the way you feel. So... Now that you, I've told you mine, I want you to turn to the person to the right and to the left. I'm going to give you one minute and I want you to tell them yours. So here we go. On the count of three one, two, three, go. Here we go. Be honest. Come on, let's get talking. Maybe it's money, retirement, health education. A better way to ask it, what makes you insecure? Now, listen, now I want you to do is just turn to another person and I want you to tell on the person that just told you, say, hey, this person over here, here's what they're dealing with. All right, come on. Just so we all know we're in the same boat. good. Our first instinct is to move towards defining our worth, value, and comparison and competition. But the reality is the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are made in the image of God, and therefore we are endowed. It is God-given. It comes with humanity, with inherent dignity and worth. We, we are endowed with inherent dignity and worth. Jesus, Scripture says that when he was water baptized, he comes up out of the water and the heavens open and the, the Spirit of God descends and there's a voice that's heard audible. This is my son whom I love and in him I am well pleased. You're my son. I love you. And in you, I am well pleased. Now, God would repeat this again on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John there. He would again, with a loud voice, proclaim this two times in Jesus' life. God, out loud, audibly, so the Son can hear it, says, you're my Son, I love you, and in you I am well pleased. I think about, why those three things? Why do you have to repeat it? Why did he say it in the place of others? When he thought about this, my son, that's relational identity. You're mine. Second, I love you. That's emotional identity. Then he says, and in you, I am well pleased. That's the approval, that, that is inherent because this, at this point, Jesus has done nothing. He hasn't preached a sermon that comes two chapters later. He hasn't raised any from the, the buddy from the dead. He hasn't walked on water performed no miracles. He's still living at home on his mother and father's dime. All you millennials are in luck right there, baby. Come on. 30 years old, still living at home and just joking. Had to jab that in there. But the point is, is this, if Jesus needed to hear it, so do you. There's a theory in psychology called the looking glass theory, is that we will ultimately determine our worth through the eyes of the person we deem the most important. The whole world could tell you you're great, but if that one person tells you you're not, then you're not. Sometimes we can deify a person's point of view. Even though it contradicts God, we believe them over God. In some ways, many of us need to dethrone that person. So, my question is, what would life look like if you begin to see yourself through the lens, the looking glass of God? Some have said that the Bible is one long book, a collection of books, if you will, of God telling us what he thinks about you. So, listen to me. You are my son and daughter. I love you, and in you... I am well pleased. It's the mantra I think we should begin as we talk about meekness. Here's the mantra. I am made in the image of God a person of dignity and worth. Would you just say that out loud with me? Here we go, ready? I am made in the image of God a person of dignity and worth again I need your participation now turn to the person that you just confessed the worst thing about yourself here and I want you to say that to them you are, made you are made in the image of God a person of dignity and worth now listen I know what some of you did you don't even believe it so now I want you to tell them again come on say it again even more for us put your finger there you are made in the image of God and person of dignity and worth. Now, if you really want to get sassy, just snap back and say, then you better treat me like it. hmm Well, I'm helping some of your marriages out right now. So it's not our first instinct, but God paints a different reality and invites us into a different reality. So what's the new posture? If I'm measuring myself, this way. What is the new posture then? It's this. I must learn to honor the inherent worth in others. Because that way, listen to this. Dr. Ivan that day, the power ladder, the power paradox is this, is that I ascend in the the ladder of power. But it's a paradox. So at the moment I am ascending... I must descend on the path of meekness, on the path of humility. I rise here and I descend here all at the same time. And this is the beauty of Jesus. Because when Jesus hears them arguing amongst themselves, Jesus didn't leave it alone. In fact, here comes one of his greatest teachings. The backdrop of this He's in the room with them getting repair of a meal. The servant hasn't shown up to wash feet. So Jesus takes his robe off, turns it into a towel, grabs a bowl of water and begins to wash every one of those feet. Jesus is at the apex of his power and descends to the lowest position. He is in the God man, Jesus, absolute power and absolute humility at the same time. Listen to what Jesus teaches. And Luke, he says, "The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors." In other words, they're they're using their power to benefit themselves. But Jesus says, "You're not to be like that." Instead, let me tell you: the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. It's a paradox. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? (laughs) No, but I'm among you as one who serves. John 13, same story. This is what it says. Now that I, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now listen to this. I have set you an example that you should do As I have done for you. I just thought about that this week. That thing that's gripped me. I have set you the example. He's telling the disciples. Now he's telling you. I have set you an example that you should do. As I have done for you. Now I got to be honest. It's about to get really intense. I have two questions. And a request. This is. Now we're going to get to meekness. How do I ascend? I think that's the easier part. The world can teach you that. But now, how do you bring in that other element? College graduates, lean in right here. Because if you spend a lifetime going up this one side, and you never descend on this side, you'll make an idol out of yourself, and pride goeth before the fall. You'll spend a lifetime building a career, and you'll hit 50s and 60s, and you'll be done. Your flaw will get you. You'll be destroyed by the intoxication, the drunkenness of power there's another side to it, descend into the pathway of humility. The first question that we should spend a lifetime pondering. And even this week, I'm asking you to ponder this. Who do you think you are better than? And I know you're thinking, I don't think I'm better than anybody. I'll prove it to you. Any Cubs fans in here? You think you're better than the Cardinal fans? Come on, yeah, that's right, come on, see? Any Bears fans in here? No, okay, there's two. Okay, good. (laughs) Let me tell you how this plays out. You got a degree from the University of Illinois, a world-class research institute. You're now taking your first job, and you're on a team, and you're put with a group of people. And the first thing you're looking at is where everybody got their degrees from. And the one that got their communication or their degree from a community college and not a world-class research institute, now you're here and you won't ever say it, but you'll act like it. They're down here, who Pastor Ricky <laughs> or you're starting the workforce. You're young. You understand the technological savviness you're up to date, you're culturally relevant, you step into the workplace, and all the people on the leadership or on the ladder of power, all the people that you say up here in the organization are old. And though you will never say that, no, but you act like it, they're irrelevant. You see them as the enemy, and less than, and you'll treat them as such. Or you're up here, and you're older. What do these young people know what they're doing? They don't know how to work. They don't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. I'm the one that knows you can try that. It's not going to (laughs) work. We will do that. I've seen this play out in marriage. One person refuses to share power. They hoard it. All the decision making is mine. And it can't be reconciled. Because I refuse to descend Because I've spent a lifetime accumulating the power. It's getting quiet now. It can play out in gender, where you feel because you're of a certain sex that you somehow are better than. It can play out in parts of the world where there is caste systems. And now you're in the workplace. These jobs are for this. This gets this. And these people don't get that. It can play out tribally. It can play out in the terms of race. So as you begin to answer that question, who do you consider yourself better than? Let me say this. Wherever you see it, the power differentiations, the power differentials, or I'll say the power inequalities where you see them existing, I want you to do something. I want you to intentionally disrupt the power dynamics. Let me give you some examples. It gets worse. I'm sorry. If there is a seat that is often reserved for you as the person of power, why don't you in a meeting refuse to sit in it and let somebody else sit there? Yeah. Why don't, if there's a food line and your culture dictates that because of your age and your position that you get to go first, what if you completely disrupt that and go around and start serving the people food and you as the leader begin to let others eat first and you, after everything's gone, you eat what's left over. And you say, I can't do that in my culture. Well, Jesus couldn't be a servant in his culture either. Some of you, your Christianity is, or some of us, our Christianity is being held captive by cultural norms. In the kingdom of God, the meekness pushes back on that because the system and the culture may not be right. Maybe as a leader, it looks like inviting feedback because in your position, you're always right and you always get to make the decisions. And maybe you could move towards meekness by saying, hey, you know what? I'd love some feedback. How are we doing? Maybe it's letting someone else make the decision and, and you living with it, even though you know it might fail. Maybe it's at the team when everybody's opinions ask, you don't give yours, but you ask for everybody else's and you don't even give yours at the end. Maybe as a parent, it means this, giving them options and letting them pick. Maybe it means when you have a conversation, you kneel down and get eyeball to eyeball. Something is so simple as that maybe it means that you discover that in your workplace, on your team, there is a group of people who are neglected. And it seems people are dismissive of their point of view because of race, gender, or whatever. And you who holds the power Amplify their idea. Amplify their voice to the point to where it's heard. Who are the people you consider yourself, Banner, then? Descending, and it gets worse. Which is harder for you, to serve or to be served? Which is harder, to serve or to be served? Now, there's two people. I'll say it better givers and receivers. There are some of us, because of our positions, we're always receiving. When we're at work, I mean, we own the place, or, or we're, we're the CEO, we're the highest level leader there, and people are always doing our bidding. People are, you go here, you do this, you do this, and, but what do you want to do? And you're, you're just constantly in command and control, and you're just moving pieces around. I would say, if that's you, and you're always receiving the serving, I would say, I want to challenge you to serve. I want you, this week, to do the job in your company, in, on your team, in your home, that nobody else wants to do. Descend, Because nobody was moving to wash anybody's feet. But Jesus gets up as the leader, all power, and descends into the job that nobody wants to do. To wipe dung off and dust off of the feet. So it may look like on the job changing the coffee filter, taking out the trash. It may look in the home. Come on, somebody, doing the laundry every day this week. Come on, you only laugh because you know it's true. Doing the dishes, taking out the trash, sweeping the floor, whatever. What's that job? You know, no, walking the dog that nobody wants to do. Now, listen, if you do it though, I have a few caveats. Number one. You can't be telling everybody in the whole family that you're doing it every day and all around the week. You can't be look what I did. Broadcasting it out there for everybody. You can't complain about it and be like, well, at least I did that this week and blah, blah, blah. And if you are going to do it, come on now. Do it with a smile on your face and with joy in your heart this week. Now, on the flip side of that, no, I'll tell you this happened to me once. I remember... On a Sunday, once I, at least I thought I preached good. Preached a message, great response. I mean, man, I was like, I was proud of myself. And I was driving home and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. I'm just in the glow of just like basking in the glow of a good Sunday. I walk in the house, I don't even set foot in the door. The door opens up and my wife is standing there, Shay, with a cleaning bottle and a rag. She doesn't say, welcome home. She didn't say, oh, you're awesome. She just says, your turn. And I was like, what is going on? She says, your daughter has done messed all over herself and decided, woken up from the nap, that she's going to be a Picasso and paint the room in poop. So I went from platform of glory... To the trenches of poop on this side over here. It's horrible. I will pass the test that day. I did it with a smile on my face. Let's talk about the other side. Sometimes we're, some of us are givers. We're more pro, have a proclivity to that. Or we're the helpers and we have our identity in helping. And sometimes there's an element of pride in that to where, no, 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 no. I could never imagine asking anybody to help me do anything. So what I want you to do this week, here's your homework as you descend into meekness and humility, whether you need it or not, find something that somebody can help you with and I want you this week, one time, to ask somebody for help. To ask them for help. And then lastly is this. We know prayer is the verb of humility. Meekness. So here's what I would say that mantra that we talked about earlier, I want you to turn it into a prayer. Morning, noon, and night, just for five, ten seconds, would this be your prayer every day this week? I am made in the image of God, and I am a person of dignity and worth. Father, I'm made in your image, and that means that I have an inherent dignity. inherent worth. So I close with this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Why is it that God says, I'll give them the earth? Let me say it a different way. My power comes from God and I will use it to build and not destroy. God can give them anything because he knows how they will use it. Because they coupled in them is not just absolute power, but they've descended absolute humility. Let's stand as we close. At Stone Creek, we respond in prayer, and I'm going to ask you just to, if you can stand, stand and bow your heads and put your hands out in front of you, palms up, or some lift their hands to the Lord. Just... I encourage you to do this because it's a posture of humility. Humble yourself before the Lord this morning. I want to speak to the first group in the room, and that's here. If you don't know Jesus, you've never surrendered your heart to Christ. You're sitting on the throne of your life and all the power and controls in your hands. But now with your hands extended, palms open, there's a transfer. And you'd say, I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. That he alone can forgive my sins. And he alone has complete control and power of my life. He's Lord over me. That's what it means to be saved. And you want to surrender the forgiveness of your soul for the forgiveness of sins. Acknowledge him as Lord and of your life. You can do that right now. Say, Lord, I give you power, my power, my control. Save me. I surrender to you. And as you're praying that by the power of the Holy Spirit... My prayer is that God will make it real to you, that you would know you've moved from darkness to light, from from death to life. But now I'm speaking to the other side of the room. This is where the prayer becomes real. I want you first response. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Just say, Lord, I humble myself before you. Bible says, blessed are the meek. So Lord, I choose meekness, I humble myself. You give grace to the humble. You exalt the humble. So I humble myself right now before you, Lord, I repent. If God showed you anybody that you think you're better than, just repent now. If you've been finding your dignity and worth in, in, in a job and in an amount of money or whatever, Just repent of that. Say, Lord, I want to find my dignity and worth in you now. Now, if you're in this room and listen, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is meekness, is humility. That means you can ask for it. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You can ask for the fruits of the Spirit. Ask the Lord for his help. Say, Lord, this week, give me the grace to walk in meekness, in humility. Give me the strength to to lower myself and to balance the equation of power inequality and power differentials. Let me have the inherent dignity and worth that I can serve and I can be served. And now maybe for the first time this week, I want you to pray that prayer. Even just say it to the Lord. Lord, I'm made in the image of God. And Lord, I'm a person of dignity and worth because of you. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for these words. May they fall on good ground and have their intended effect. I pray that you'd save this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would transform hearts this morning. Do both. Turn this place into a hospital room now and do your work. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Please remain standing as we worship the Lord together.